They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $10 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS10. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Tipping Chen is the author of Land of Big Numbers, a new English language collection of short stories about modern China. As one reviewer puts it, in her stories, dreams come true, but always at a cost. Tuping is a Wall Street Journal reporter currently based in Philadelphia who spent a number of years as a Beijing and Hong Kong correspondent. Co-hosting is Mara Vistendahl, a reporter at The Intercept. So Tuping, what's the backstory? How did you come to write this collection? I wrote Land of Big Numbers when I was living in Beijing as a correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. And even though my day job was writing about China, there were just so many other stories and characters and details of life that I'd encountered that didn't fit neatly into a headline, but also still felt important and urgent and, and really worth telling. And so, so much of what readers encounter in, in Land of Big Numbers are kind of, you know, the stories that felt essential, but not not necessarily newsy or, or you know, timely, but felt human and important and, you know, personal and idiosyncratic. All these sides of China that I felt really struck me when living there, but weren't necessarily ones that I felt like I was able to evoke perhaps as fully um, in newspaper stories. So was there one moment where you decided that you wanted to try your hand at writing short stories on the side? And there is really excellent stories. I highly recommend the book, oh, by the way. Um, or was this like, was this your secret plan all along? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm someone who actually has written fiction and poetry for most of my life and have always just kept it as something really strictly personal and, and not anything that I ever talked about, even with really close friends in Beijing. So, I, you know, from the first time I lived in China, I was, I always had something I was working on. When I lived in Chengdu in 2011, I wrote a novel, which is living on a hard drive somewhere. And <laughs> when I was living in Beijing, I, I picked it up and was working on it, trying to revise it and just getting stuck. And I am someone who's always loved short fiction, but hadn't tried to write any. And I remember really vividly there was one night biking back home from the bureau in Beijing, stark out, and I was paused at a traffic light, and out of nowhere this phrase, Shanghai murmur, popped into my head, and I thought I would try and write a short story around it. And then I set myself a goal of writing 10. And it was really just, to me, as you know, as, especially as someone who was really struggling with a novel at that point, and just that feeling of almost liberation that came in, in getting to write in a different uh, form and this feeling of just like having spent so long in the country from the time I first arrived as a student in 2006 um, and of course more recently as a reporter with the Wall Street Journal just spending time you know, really wrestling with the country and thinking about it and some of the questions it evoked and also just I'm someone who's always both as a reporter and as a fiction writer just always keeping lists of details and images, you know, overheard phrases or conversations that had struck me. And so once I started to write these short stories, I felt like just so much had been built up in many ways that it all kind of came flying out. I sometimes think of one character in the book, an elderly farmer who's like a rural inventor that readers meet. And he's one of my favorite characters. And he's someone who just amasses this warehouse of discarded objects over the years, old rusty walk, people's discarded clothes, rags, and he creates things out of them. And he just, I think, 
I feel like there's a part of myself that likewise just is really like just wanted was wanted to see these yeah kind of details and notes that I'd assembled be used somehow give them life somehow and it felt like there was once I did start start writing really did feel like there was just so much that came pouring out and this sort of infused with a sense of urgency too in the writing yeah so I thought you did just such an excellent job of these details that are you know all around even trying putting them into characters and giving them life and and showing the way ordinary people live but then in the backdrop at the same time you still feel the weight of the government and the and surveillance and so forth but it's not but it's really people's lives that are foregrounded you should Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the way that you dealt with some of those important issues involving the the chinese government and what what you were trying to communicate no, that's no. It's a it's a really good question. I think that's well observed. The state in these stories is very much a character and is is sometimes in the foreground, sometimes more recedes. But whatever. I, I mean, I think what I was trying to capture in some of these stories is that sense in China, almost of of the duality. When you know, on the one hand, it's possible to live a life that really does feel you know insulated in some ways from the reach of the state. It is obviously a, a world that. It's easy to live a life that feels so so bright and empowered and um, jazzy in, in all kinds of consumerist ways, but where at the same time, of course, you have dissidents being locked up. And as well, it's a world in which repression from the state and that implied threat of state brutality is, is never far away. And so in writing these stories, it was, you know, trying in some of the stories, I mean, it's much more in the foreground. I'm thinking of Lulu, which opens the collection. It follows a pair of twins, one, a brother who becomes a professional video gamer, and his sister who takes a much more dangerous path of becoming sort of an online activist. Um, but in others, it's evoked more subtly the contrast. I'm thinking of Hotline Girl, which features a young woman in a city rather like Beijing in sort of the not-so-distant future, who works for um, a government office charged with uh, maintaining citizen satisfaction. And you have all these sorts of like chirpy videos and announcements and, and state media, you know, playing footage of gambling kittens and broadcasting this sort of like grandmotherly health advice. But at the same time, the reader at the end of the story sees these protesters being rounded up in an unmarked government van, something that's evoked almost casually. And it's not anything that the readers or or that the characters bat an eye at. But with the setup there, I mean, the intent really was to try and draw that juxtaposition for readers, you know, who who do see very much that discordance, even if it's something that for the for the characters themselves is, is seen much more matter factly and is, is more at the margins taken for granted, which, you know, and I think I think both of those truths are really present in modern Chinese life. And- yeah, I, I loved that story yeah. because when I was, you know, when I was living in Shanghai, I always used to marvel at the existence of the government hotlines and how, <laughs> you know, I once called the illegal construction oh, hotline and, and they shut down the project like two hours later. And it was <laughs> oh, um, wow. this weird disconnect between, you know, this weird moment where suddenly the, the state was quite responsive to, yeah, I don't know. I just thought, I thought that was, that was an excellent I thought that was, I said excellent like 10 times. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought that was a very in- yeah, interesting no. way to frame the story. I'm so fascinated that you had that experience of calling him. And I, I do think that's something that comes through in, the, in that story is just 
it is surprising, right, that the government would have some of these offices that are charged with being responsive in that way and addressing citizen complaints, but they, but they do. And that's absolutely a part of the experience of living in modern China too, is seeing the ways that the government does deploy different kinds of tools to keep people happy. How much were you thinking about, you know, the different perspectives that potential readers will come to this with regards to their familiarity with the sorts of themes that you lay out in the book? To be honest, really not at all. I spend so much time in, in my regular job as a journalist thinking so much about audience and being preoccupied about what I need to explain and what do they know. And for me, fiction felt like just this license to create a world that didn't have to explain itself and didn't have to footnote itself or apologize for itself. And um, and for me, really, you know, as I sort of alluded to before, it's just I was writing these stories almost just out of this terror that I was, you know, I had the really extraordinary privilege of, of getting to live in a country at a time of so much change and inflection and and just being struck at every level, human sensory intellectually and otherwise, just by the country and wanting to capture it really to the best of my ability in any way I could. And that writing something that I wanted to read, yeah, but in terms of audience, that was mercifully not a voice I had in my head, just because I think if I had, it would have been a much more crippling experience. So if we lived in a different world in which writing short stories could uh, more straightforwardly uh, pay leases, would you like to do this full time? Is there something that journalism <laughs> gives you in terms of satisfaction yeah. that, that, that this sort of writing doesn't necessarily? Or how do the two sort of relate to each other in That's really you know, the way question. you went about writing this? For me, so I stumbled into journalism, not really even knowing it was a profession. Like I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really contemplated it until I was in college. And then I met an editor at an alt weekly who was covering some of the campus stuff that I was involved in. And I remember asking him, what are journalists like? You know, are they nice people? <laughs> like, I just I hadn't been, you know, I was just really curious about the profession. And um, I started freelancing for the paper and, and loved it. It really just felt like such kind of a magical occupation, like license to ask people a million questions and just be professionally curious. I, I loved it and still do. And for me, I would, I would never, I mean, I don't know, never say never. Life is a long thing, but it's hard. It's really hard for me to say, to envision myself wanting to leave the profession just because I, I do love it so much. And so much of what went into Land of Big Numbers too, was just by virtue of the fact that I, you know, journalism is this extraordinary passport into people's lives and entree into different worlds. And I've always loved that. I've always just loved getting to sort of, yeah, be insatiably uh, curious about other people's ways of existing. And yeah, so, and I, and I do think there, there are um, common threads between the two as well. I mean, journalism is about paying deep and close attention um, that attention is so much, and so, sometimes I, I'm inclined to think that's the best gift we can offer people in hearing their stories. And likewise in fiction, I think it's a, it's a really similar muscle of you know focusing on the mundane and the ordinary in many ways, and, and seeing meaning there, and trying to pick up those details and and you know the, the moments that reveal more about who we are or who we are as a society or as as a nation. And so, yeah, I, th I think they really do work in tandem. I also will say just for me, the first time I wrote a novel in Chengdu in 2011, I like just basically didn't leave my room for months and months on end. And I lived inside of an unheated dorm in a mosquito net. It was basically like camping out for <laughs> months and months on end. And it was not a particularly... Uh, I mean, it was, I was really happy. I loved it. But it wasn't, I think, a really sustainable <laughs> life, especially more so given now that, you know, I'm 
back in the States, I have a family and all that. And so for me, I, I, I do feel very much that journalism keeps me grounded in some ways. It's otherwise, it's like way too easy for me to go off the ranch and, and just get otherwise lost. Otherwise, you'd be in, in, in under a mosquito net. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just like would never, I would never talk to it anybody. It strikes me that there's this, that there's this almost symmetry in, you know, if you, in the work of being a journalist and, there are all these details that you can't inevitably can't put in a story because, you know, they're about the, the way that officials are behaving at a banquet or, you know, the way people are standing in an airport or the way people talk to each other. And were you collecting those moments as you went along to save up for stories? No, not to save up for stories, but just because they struck me. So, I mean, they were just kind of seared into my mind. I mean, and probably both of you have had that experience too, right? Of, of you know, maybe not just trying to, but just in your own life, there's so much that is unforgettable. And for me, that was so much of my time in China from the, from the first time I arrived in the country in 2006, just this feeling of being so struck by what I was seeing around me and so many moments when I would look up and think, I wish I could share this. So it wasn't a conscious thing or really thinking at all or hoping to use them. It was sort of a compulsive habit of just, yet, I mean, trying to, to catalog for myself in some ways, however I could, what I saw around me that just seemed so, so compelling and unforgettable. So Tipping, in composing these stories, um, often you have, you know, presumably what is Chinese language dialogue in English. I'm curious how you did you think of what they were saying in Chinese and then translated in your head? Or what was the what was the sort of process of trying to bring, you know, phrases or ideas in general, uh, not only into fiction, but also into English language fiction? Yeah, I think it really varied depending on the story. There were some where I was more conscious of thinking and trying to translate, which is, is a pretty familiar muscle just from, of course, spending so much time interviewing people um, in Chinese and translating in my day-to-day -day work. I, I think it, it varied according to the story. So for ones like New Fruit, for example, in which we meet, um, it's set in a hutong in Beijing, a very kind of traditional community. And it's a story in many ways that focuses on a number of old retirees in the area, including an older couple who've sort of fallen out of love. And there's a new fruit that arrives in the market that is endowed with almost these supernatural powers that make people start remembering all the things that they want to forget. And that was one story where I was hearing pretty plainly the voices in my head and, and trying to work between the languages to to capture them. But in others, you know, that, that were more cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan, there was less, you know, stories that featured um, younger people or, you know, educated Chinese abroad, much, much less so in those cases. I'm curious in this moment that we're in right now where, you know, some people who stormed the Capitol did that because they believed that China had submarines off the U.S. shores or, you know, the MyPillow mm. guy is mm -hmm. circulating his uh, film about how China stole the election. Do you, do you think there's a role for stories of the sort that you've written to kind of help people better understand what life is like in China? And that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I you know, it just, it was so refreshing for me to read those stories after, after, you know, scanning through the news and this, in, increasingly yeah. confrontational tone that's developed between the two countries. 
I do. I think that that fiction is an act of empathy and imagination. And I really do believe that it has the ability to make people think about other worlds, other realities. One of the extraordinary gifts it gives us is just knowing that you are you're not the center of the world and, and that the world is more complex than you might imagine. And even for people who feel like they know China really well or are well acquainted with its headlines and statistics, like I think there's so much value that comes in focusing on individual stories. And I think especially in the US when there is a tendency to think of the country as a monolith and to focus so much on the government and the party, it's really easy to forget about the fact that it is a much more multi-layered place with people, you know, with billions of stories, people with their own stories, their own narratives, and their own ways of making lives in the cracks of the system. And one thing um, I was talking about last night was with Jiayong Fan during the, a book event that we did was, you know, just that was part of what was really extraordinary to see with Clubhouse, right? And, and that brief moment in which we had more of that window both ways into the country that is usually blocked is just getting to hear more voices and more stories is such an important, powerful thing, and especially in a political context when people, again, tend to think of China as just this almost, yeah, like, you know, this monolith that's defined by the CCP, when really it's so important to also hear more more voices and more stories. Tuping, you know, it's striking you say that uh, in a in an interview that I also did on this channel with Aija of Gushra FM, we sort of landed on the same theme and and seeing sort of Chinese stories told in fiction as well as nonfiction, I think is is an important thing for people to engage with for sure. Um, do you read much of any contemporary Chinese fiction? Did that? Are there any folks in particular who you 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 admire trying to do the same thing in in Mandarin? I mean, there there are of course so many Chinese writers that I admire. It's funny though. I mean, I, I've been asking. You know, we're inspired by Chinese surrealists because, of course, that is so much a vein that runs through the collection of magical realism. Um, and you know, one of the books that I love that I often refer people to is *The Seventh Day* by Yu Hua. You know, someone else who whose writing often invokes headlines and ha- has that also that degree of satire involved. But I mean, for me, setting out to write. Um, I mean, it wasn't like I was thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm going to write a surrealist book. I mean, I, or, you know, it wasn't thinking at all of, in sort of that more direct way of, of tapping into some of that lineage. It was more just, you know, I think so many of the surreal or, or more playful ideas that are brought forth in the book were just like drawn from real life. We're just kind of part of the nature of living in modern China. And, you know, I'm thinking of funeral strippers, which readers encounter in one story, you know, a, a real phenomenon more in rural locales where you know someone dies and you want to ensure good turnout and so one way to do do so is by inviting a funeral stripper or robots who's who are dedicated to chopping noodles that was one that actually was really pleased to get to write a story about for the journal and also make an appearance in the book just as someone who loves noodles and also is very interested in in robot culture (laughs) yeah could not resist putting it in the book but you know i didn't want i also didn't want the surrealism to feel like too exaggerated or or funhouse mirror or sometimes like i do feel like it in writing about China, sometimes you see it used more maybe as like a bit of a sledgehammer. And I wanted it to be something that was subtler and, you know, that coexists smoothly with the realism that is also really the basis of the collection in many ways. And, you know, but so, something that could could be used to evoke the playfulness and surprise that comes in living in modern China, but also, you know, tr- trying to stay focused on 
essentially, you know, the goal of, of evoking the country with all its realities, even, even through that magical realist lens. What you said just now about really trying to not play up too much the surrealist element and, and foreground ordinary people's experiences. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Lulu and her brother in, in the story Lulu at the opening of the book. The relationship between those two characters and the dialogue and the push and pull that we see in that family, really in many ways, some of that conflict is, is one that I've just wrestled with myself as a person and, and, and more specifically as a person living in China. I think these are the questions of that sto- story are so many ways, ones that you just inevitably are forced to confront in China, right? You know, what does it mean to be a good person? What does it mean to live in a society where you are surrounded by so many injustices and yet it's also at the same time so easy to look away and to pursue your own ambitions or lives and, and in many ways are also required to. That's by of course, the bounds set up by the state. And, you know, that that heartbreak for the brother and the family of getting to see someone you love so deeply embark on this dangerous course and this head-on collision with the state in many ways. I mean, it just, it was something that always I, I found hugely moving to see, you know, this this conflict played out in real life too in, in speaking with human rights lawyers and activists and and their families. And I just think the, yeah, the, the relation between the two siblings is just this question of what is it, you know, yeah, what does it mean to be a good person and what's enough and, and what is ever enough? I think as humans, we are really good at tricking ourselves into thinking we're doing the right thing and to absolve ourselves of any wrongdoings. And in China, as, as in other countries too, um, to follow a certain script and to run across a character like Lulu is in some ways a rare thing. But in China, I was struck at the number of people who you would meet who were willing to speak out in a way that placed themselves very much at risk and yet were willing to go ahead and do so anyway. I also thought it was fascinating how at the beginning of the story, Lulu's brother is kind of the black sheep of the family He's playing video games all the time. He, he doesn't look like he has a very bright future. And not to give it away, but by the end, it looks very different. And, you know, it's a sort of inversion of performance and who the sibling who you expect to be the one who succeeds in society isn't. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that part of the relationship. Yeah, I think in, in writing that character and the brother who ends up being so personally successful when his sister, the one with all the promise, does not. It just, it seemed to speak so much to that fundamental bargain in Chinese business and Chinese society in so many ways, right? That it is possible to live so well and comfortably and succeed as long as you stay within these invisible guideposts. And in writing that character of the brother, I mean, it's something that you know, he's somebody. I th- he's not someone who is who who goes untouched by what happens to his sister. He's he's very cognizant of her choices and the tragedy that it involves. And at the same time, you know, he understands. I think to a certain extent what she's done. We see their closeness growing up, and at the same time, we also see the sense of distance from her actions and the feeling that you know he doesn't he doesn't want to be implicated, and nor does he. I think really truly understand why she's done what she's done, and in writing that story in the way that it ended, it was something you know, not wanting to 
inject too much drama in that conflict between them because I think at the end of the day, these sorts of choices that people do make, even when it takes you in radically different directions, so many of them, you know, they're, they accumulate over time. They're like a lifetime of these individual choices and like the siblings you may end up pulls apart, but so often it's just these subtle gestures of life and, and, and not, not necessarily, you know, the grand human drama that you might expect it to be when we're talking about these kinds of human tragedies. So the the title story, Land of Big Numbers, about this government employee and his sort of stock market adventures and a relationship with his parents. What was the what was the germ of that one? I wrote that story after hearing a conversation in a small restaurant that I was just sitting and listening to two men talk, and they were talking about a case of a government employee who had stolen money from the government to invest in the stock market. And they thought it was the most brilliant thing in the world because he would invest the money, he would he would make all of his returns, and then he would put the original sum back. And so he it was brilliant. And it just that always struck me, both of course the story itself, but also the reaction of the two men talking about it. Yeah, I just kept thinking about it. Sort of the matter of fact pragmatism of it. And also that just it just I, once I started thinking about it and trying to imagine who this person might be, that's that's where the character Ju Feng really came from, was was picturing, okay, well, who who is this government bureaucrat who's doing such a thing? And from there, the story just unfolded quite naturally. I'd, I'd spent plenty of time in, in second and third tier cities and, you know, imagining a government bureaucrat occupying a position, you know, like that in, in one such place. And at the same time, having, feeling this like generational ache and sense of ambition and desire to be be more, be someone. And that became, you know, then what we see sort of in many ways at the heart of the story, this this generational conflict between Tim, him and his father. Um, it was in some ways, it was one of the harder stories in the book to write just because he is, he's someone who I, I have a lot of trouble relating to. Uh, he's he's a, a fairly aggressively um, masculine guy who who sees, you know, his parents and the elder generation with, with a fair bit of scorn. But um, it was, it was, also just a, a part of the country that I wanted, you know, that felt important to capture and was a challenge that I wanted to set for myself was just trying to find a way to conjure that up. Because I think that sense, that driving sense that, that Jufeng feels of, you know, being part of a country on the rise and on the make and, and likewise, you know, him wanting to, to not miss the boat. I think the, that is so much a part of you know, what you often do hear from certain kinds of, of young people in China. And, you know, that, that sort of sense mingled sense of both pride and inadequacy that you see in that character also felt like something that I had encountered and yeah just in a, in a character like Jifeng just seemed, seemed like um, a really natural way to to embody it well as someone who's had a number of arguments with his parents about my dogecoin and gme positions over the past <laughs> few weeks I can most certainly tell you that these themes are universal I'm, I'm curious you know I think we, we probably have to wrap this up but maybe should I ask the final question so last year, your colleagues at the Wall Street Journal were kicked out of China. And you know, I know for, for many reporters and scholars, there's a kind of trepidation about going back right now. And I, I have no doubt reading the stories that you will find a way to write about whatever is you know, whatever, and I look forward to reading whatever you write. But I'm just curious if this, if you feel like the stories in this book are somehow the end of an era for you. That's a really hard question. I can say 
they, you know, it's it certainly the chance to have written them does feel like a part already of a lost era, even though, you know, we're not talking very long ago, but with the events of the last year and with so many American journalists being kicked out of the country, my colleagues included, I mean, it really, I'm so grateful for the chance to have lived in the country and written the stories when I did. I don't know what the response will be in the country. I, I, and I wasn't writing, thinking about that. And it would, it's, I can't even start to, yeah, I mean, I would just get emotional talking about the idea of not going back. I mean, I think at this point, not going back is just, it's, it's, it's not a pistol to do now for external reasons that have nothing to do with the book. I don't know if it is the end of a chapter for me in terms of writing. I can say personally though, it's just China's, it's the place where I've lived longest than anywhere except for my hometown. It's, it's been home for me for so many years. And when all this is over, you know, I, 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 I would like nothing more in many ways than to go back and see friends. And there's just so much that I miss and look forward to, um, hopefully, when things are more normal. Mara and Toping, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you so much, Jordan, for having us.